Well, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 2 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 15, to the end of chapter 17. For the number of you who are, a few of you at least I know, who are visiting with us this morning, you will probably understand already that we are nearing the end of a lengthy series in which we have been reading and studying and preaching through the entirety of First and Second Samuel. And you've heard now this text read a moment ago. I encourage you to have your Bibles open and available as we move through the text together. I'll try to say enough that in the event you have not been with us or don't know much about Second Samuel or First Samuel for that matter, at least the context as much as we need will be supplied, though all these narratives at this point in 2 Samuel are a bit long, a bit complicated, and so you'll have to to hang in there with me as we move through the detail. Let's start big picture. What's this narrative showing us at this point in 2 Samuel? On the level of the story, I mean, to begin with, what's the narrative about? Let me try to summarize it this way and see what you think. I think this narrative shows that Absalom's apparent moment of triumph is the beginning of David's return to the throne. That just when Absalom's victory is almost complete, David's punishment is complete. So that after four terrible chapters... Since David's sin of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see now narrative evidence that David's punishment hasn't removed the promises of God. That, in other words, I'm suggesting to you this morning that 2 Samuel 17 is here in the Bible to tell us that the promises of God to David will stand. His kingdom cannot fail. Now, we haven't read those promises in a while, and maybe if you haven't been with us, you're not sure what I refer to. So if you don't mind, turn back to 2 Samuel 7, just a few pages back, chapter 7. There's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, but this is the text with reference to which I think we have to read all of the rest of 2 Samuel. So look again at chapter 7. Verses 12 to 16, and as we look at them, think about these promises that are made in light of all that we've been dealing with now in the last few weeks, if you've been here. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, this is the Lord speaking to David through Nathan the prophet. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And I think the main narrative tension we feel that really got going for us in 2 Samuel 11 from that point onward is this. How will God bring his promises about? How? When David falls into grievous sin, how? When as a result of that sin, David's kingdom will come to the brink of elimination, how? When David reaches his lowest point, are God's promises able to hold? The kingdom is under full attack in 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17 is not the Lord raising up David's offspring after him and establishing his kingdom. Last week, we followed David and those with him as they went out from Jerusalem, if you were here, across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and then on toward the wilderness east of the Jordan River. Absalom, David's son, the text says, had stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. He declared himself to be king. He was then on his way into Jerusalem. David was leaving. This was David's darkest day. And the people who chose to be with David knew that. They covered their heads, chapter 15, verse 30 said, weeping as they went. It gets no darker than the king of Israel being driven out of Jerusalem, heading for the wilderness. Where we left off last week, was, I suggest, the nadir of David's life. He's hit bottom. And there's no question, if you know the narratives that precede this one, that it was the Lord's will that David go there. Right? The same Nathan who had spoken those astonishing promises back in 2 Samuel 7 is the Nathan who spoke the judgment of the Lord against David for his sin in 2 Samuel 12. If you want to look there, you can. In 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 10, I'll read verses 10 to 12. These verses have sort of been hanging over all of what we've done in the last few weeks. Now, therefore, the Lord says through Nathan, the sword shall never depart from your house, David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now look at Our text this morning is about the Lord fulfilling his word. And I mean by that both words. Does that make sense? It's the Lord fulfilling his word of judgment. And it's the Lord fulfilling or beginning to fulfill turning the course of events at just this moment when all seems lost in order to fulfill 
his word of promise. And that's what I want us to reflect on this morning. This is a text, I think, about the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God operates at the level of huge historic kingdom promises. And the sovereignty of God operates at the level of individual lives. David's life, Absalom's life, other lives in this passage, your life and my life, brothers and sisters. And I want us to see that this morning. I want us to see this morning that David's own fate at this, his lowest point, is conspicuously beyond his control. Which means I want us to see that David's not the one ultimately responsible for the change of course in 2 Samuel 17. The Lord is. That's what I think we're meant to see here. So let's move through this text together. I'll return to this theme of God's sovereignty a couple times, but as we've seen again and again in recent weeks, we cannot get anywhere until we've made sure we understand what's in the text. So let me work at that level for a while and just just run through it with me. We pick up in verse 15 of chapter 16. And I think what we have from there to the end of chapter 16 is, is primarily to emphasize the completion of David's punishment. Not that there'll be no lingering effects of his sin, but that the specific judgments spoken of by the Lord come to fulfillment here. I think that's the main idea But it's not all that's there. There's also this interaction you see here between Hushai and Absalom. So, especially if you weren't here last week, or you just don't have any memory of last week, we need to to back up to try and make sure that we're remembering what's going on. Verse 15 of, of our text takes us back to the end of chapter 15. And you may remember the context for this. David had heard on his way out of Jerusalem that Ahithophel, his esteemed counselor, was in fact among the conspirators with Absalom. So in chapter 15, verse 31, David prays, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And you remember what happened next? Hushai appeared in the very next verse. Clearly, he's on David's side because he's mourning with everyone else, and David sees what's going on. David sees that Hushai is the answer to his prayer. David sends Hushai back to Jerusalem. Remember? To defeat for me, he says, the counsel of Ahithophel. And then here's chapter 15, verse 35. David's here talking with Hushai. And he says to him, Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? Meaning in Jerusalem. We also discussed them last week. How David had those priests return to Jerusalem with the ark. You recall? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. That's the background, which is essential for understanding what's going on in our text this morning. 
And then we're there in verse 15 of chapter 16. Now, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And there's Hushai, verse 16. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king. Or at least that's the English way of saying it. In Hebrew, it's just, may the king live. The king. And you see, (laughs) the whole thing is doublespeak, right? You have to read everything Hushai says here, and it's a little clearer in the Hebrew than it is in the English in this specific sense. You have to read everything he says here as having a real meaning that Absalom totally misses because Absalom can only hear what he wants to hear. Hushai never says which king he wants to live. Absalom assumes it's him. But, of course, for Hushai, we know it's not. It's David. Even verse 18, when Hushai says, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, which we know is all really a reference to David. The Lord hadn't chosen Absalom. But Absalom hears it as being about him. And Hushai obviously said that, knowing that that's how Absalom would hear it. This is all very deceptively, cleverly done. We're prepared now for these two competing counselors of Absalom who will make up the main section of our narrative this morning to go at it, but... But first, in chapter 16, verse 20, comes the horrible moment where we read, Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Yeah, they'll be strengthened because they realize there's no turning back at this point. Ahithophel's advice is clear, direct, unambiguous, and absolutely outrageous. You recall from chapter 15, verse 16, that David had left ten concubines in Jerusalem to keep the house, the text says, Absalom evidently doesn't question it and doesn't hesitate. Absalom does what Hithophel says. They pitch a tent on the roof, and everyone knows what's going on inside. And the location of the tent is just meant to bring us full circle now, right? Where was it that David's sin began? On the roof on the same roof. Scholars debate the precise significance of what Absalom is doing here, but I think the point that we're meant to see is just stated by Ahithophel very clearly. This is meant to offend and to disrespect and to hurt David. And furthermore, it's to ensure that all Israel knows Absalom has made himself a stench to David, right? Why? 
Well, because nothing would make the breach between David and his son more definite, more irreparable than this. This was to make the course of things irreversible. One scholar says it well. What Ahithophel advised was, quote, an irreversible act of the utmost provocation, comparable even to rape. Ahithophel knew what he was doing. He always knew what he was doing. That's the point of chapter 16, verse 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. And that seems odd or tricky, that verse. It's not meant to be, I don't think. To say that Ahithophel's advice was as if one consulted the word of God is only to make a comparison, and the point of the comparison is that Ahithophel's counsel's powerful. It accomplishes what it intends, just like the word of God. It doesn't mean the counsel was morally like the word of God, of course. This is wicked. It's contemptible. Absalom's unquestioning acceptance of it is inexcusable. But at the same time, you readers of 2 Samuel, you know what the irony is, right? The irony is that Ahithophel's counsel actually did accomplish the purpose of the word of God. The advice that's meant by Ahithophel to overthrow David's kingdom nevertheless carries out Yahweh's judgment upon David's sin, which is necessary in order for now the narrative to turn and restore David's kingdom. In the narrative context, this means, I think, that there's there's even in this horrific, severe moment, there's meant to be a certain kind of hope in this text. And that hope is found in the fact that even the betrayer is yet in the hands of God, you see. That Ahithophel's act of treachery only executes God's word. This was the completion of David's punishment, and now we watch as the Lord acts against Absalom and begins the restoration of Yahweh's appointed king. And if that sort of turnaround of treachery that only carries out the will of God sounds familiar to you. It should. There'd be another Ahithophel in Jesus' day. His name is Judas. And they'll meet with similar ends, as we'll see. Chapter 17 is mostly then about the conflict that comes between Ahithophel and Hushai. And not that they ever speak to one another. We're not told they do, but... They're in competition as they're advising Absalom, of course. So what we get is first Ahithophel's plan, verses 1 to 4 of 17. Then we get Hushai's alternative, quote-unquote, plan in verses 5 to 14. We're not surprised to find Ahithophel is careful, he's calculated, he's concise. He says he would lead the troops. You notice that there, verses 1 to 3, how it's let me choose. I will arise, I will come, I will strike. He sees no need to expose Absalom to the dangers of this nighttime raid that he's proposing. 
he says he would assemble a contingent of men, men who would represent all Israel, hence the 12,000 men he proposes, probably meaning it symbolically, the actual number that Absalom would have amassed or Ahithophel could have amassed immediately for that night would in all, almost certainly be rather smaller than that. The point is they represent all the people, 12,000, 12 tribes of Israel. He says he would pursue David immediately tonight, he says, that he would strike while David's people are tired and exhausted, that he would execute, in fact, only David. Because with David eliminated, then Absalom would receive the loyalty of David's supporters. You're meant to see, especially in light of that last verse of chapter 16, just to tell us how effective Ahithophel's counsel is. You're meant to see this was the impressive plan. It was measured. It was meticulous. It's hard to see how this plan could have failed. Those who heard it could see all of that. So verse 4 says, And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Don't miss, friends, that judged by the circumstances and by the purpose for which it was given, Ahithophel's counsel was good. It would have worked. That's part of the point here. Just a footnote from verse 4. We don't know how large this group of all the elders of Israel was. But that phrase, all the elders of Israel, that appears only three times in Samuel. That appears when they demanded a king way back in 1 Samuel 8. It appears when they anointed David as king over Israel in 2 Samuel 5. And it appears here where they decide to destroy the king God had given them. Which I think is meant to show us that it wasn't just Absalom and just a handful or a few followers that are going this way. Absalom had the majority of Israel behind him. There's no reason looking at this on the surface to think that David's coming back. Short of the Lord's intervention. Which, of course, is exactly what we get. And the first evidence of it is in verse 5. Because we should be surprised at verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear what he has to say. Now here's the question, folks. Why did Absalom seek Hushai's counsel at that moment? They'd all just agreed that Ahithophel's advice was right. Why call up Hushai and then say to him in verse 6 of all things, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Let me tell you everything Ahithophel said. Shall we do what he says? If not, you speak. Right? I mean, what's going on here? This is critical to see. I think we have to think about everything now, beginning there in verse 5 and following from that in light of where it all ends up down in verse 14. So go down to verse 14. This is the conclusion after Hushai says his piece. It says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And the thing is, it wasn't better. 
Ahithophel's counsel is straightforward and honest. Hushai's is manipulative and deceptive. He uses every trick at his disposal. We get flattery, fear, flowery language, all of it rhetorically designed to distract Absalom from the genius of Ahithophel's plan. You can't look at all the detail of it, but just a couple comments. Look at even how he starts the very first sentence in verse 8. You know, Absalom, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. He says, you know, Absalom. Oh, it's gently flattering while implying that Ahithophel doesn't know, right? Ahithophel doesn't seem to know what you know very well, O king. You see, Hushai goes on to play on the fears of Absalom. They are mighty men, he says. But you know Ahithophel's right. David and his men were weary and discouraged at this point. The end of chapter 15 told us that. Or the end of the end of 16 verse 14, where we ended last week, told us that. But Hushai creates a different impression. Never mind the facts. Oh, he says they're enraged. They're like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Ahithophel hasn't considered, Absalom, just how experienced your father is in war. He's probably hidden himself. Some of your people will fall. Then others will panic. Look at verse 10. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. I mean, Hushai's not using facts on the ground about the current circumstance. He's using the power of language to deceive Absalom. And then we get his plan. And you, you just have to read this remembering that the purpose of the whole thing is to achieve the opposite of what he says. Right? Because the real purpose here is to give David time to escape from any sudden attack from Absalom's forces. Because Ahithophel's plan is right, and Hushai knows that. So the whole point is to delay action. And so to get Absalom to agree, Hushai appeals to his arrogance. Verse 11. My counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you and that you go to battle in person and go big, Absalom, from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea from multitude. Forget this precision strike just to eliminate David. No. We shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. I mean, you're starting to get the point? Look at verse 13. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. <laughs> Come on. Ahithophel's advice is 42 words in Hebrew. Hushai's is 129 words. And it's in what all those extra words are designed to do that Hushai wins the day. The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, except it wasn't. Which is why, look carefully at this, which is why you then get the controlling thought of the whole chapter, I think, there in the second half of verse 14. Look at it. This is our narrator now. And this is unusual in Samuel, you know, if you've been with us, for the narrator to say something like this. For, why, why did, what just happened? Why did that just happen? Right? You're reading this. For, 
the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You see, Hushai's advice wasn't good. Ahithophel's was, but Hushai knew how to win Absalom over. And from the very beginning, Absalom asked for Hushai's counsel. Why? Well, I don't know Absalom's reasons, if he had any that he would have articulated why he was asking Hushai for counsel. But what I can safely say is that ultimately it's because the Lord had ordained it. That's why. Hushai's advice prevailed ultimately because the Lord's plan was to establish David's kingdom, not Absalom's. It's strong language there in verse 14b. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Which means which means there's a lot going on in this moment. The Lord was both answering David's prayer from back in chapter 15, verse 31, as he was also acting in judgment on Absalom. And to do it, he didn't actually make Ahithophel's advice foolish. He made it appear foolish to Absalom through the clever words of Hushai. What Absalom had done in coming to Jerusalem, taking David's wives, was, of course, from one point of view, the Lord's doing. While at the same time, Absalom is fully responsible and the Lord judges him accordingly, all of which is also the way by which the Lord keeps his promises to David and begins the restoration of his kingdom. We're going to come back one more time to this theme, but let's just fly through the rest of the text now. We know what direction this is all going, but the narrator still gives us a good thriller of a story. Right? David's network of informants that we heard about last week is put to use. Hushai knows things are precarious. No matter what Absalom's initial response was, it wouldn't take much for Ahithophel to poke holes in Hushai's counsel. He knows that. So Hushai goes right to Zadok and Abiathar. They send a female servant to Jonathan and to to Ahimaaz, who are stationed outside the city for safety. Only the narrator doesn't even tell us if the word got to them before we find out that they'd been seen, that the person who'd seen them had gone and told Absalom about them. And then suddenly we're with the two men who are fleeing and they go to the house of a known David supporter in Bahurim, whose wife then quickly hides them in a well over which she puts a cover and and makes it look like she's drying seed on it. Right. What does that make you think of? You Old Testament gurus makes you think of Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua too, doesn't it? How can it not? But if that's true, then what that means is that this narrator is telling us in this moment that it is, in fact, the loyalists to David who were the true Israelites and the partisans of Absalom, however many of them, all the elders of Israel, it says, no, they were the enemies of Yahweh. So then verse 21, they make it to David. They tell him what they knew of Ahithophel's counsel. David and the people then move so that the end of verse 22, by daybreak, the narrator says, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. 
And so remarkably, despite all appearances, a new dawn has arisen in David's kingdom. And now the whole foundation of Ahithophel's good advice is undone. Absalom has lost the element of speed, the element of surprise. Ahithophel can rightly see what that means. He knows David very well indeed. Absalom's downfall is now inevitable. His own, that is Ahithophel's own execution for treason is certainly assured. And so in a chillingly worded verse, there in verse 23 of chapter 17, the text says, Ahithophel set his house in order and hanged himself. Because you see, Ahithophel's plans were opposed to the Lord's plans. That's the point. They were, therefore, doomed to failure. You cannot oppose the Lord's anointed. David himself knew that. Many centuries later, there would be another betrayer who would find that out as well. The end of chapter 17 just then sets the scene for what's to come next. It says there in verse 24 and again in 27, David came to Mahanaim. That means it's about 30 miles now from the Jordan River crossing to Mahanaim. Verse 24 says Absalom crossed the Jordan. Amasa was set over the army. Joab was with David at that point. So it's not Joab, it's Amasa. Then verse 26 says Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And you're ready for the battle that's coming in chapter 18. Only before that, there's then something of a, of a surprise in verses 27 to 29. Because David and those with him are now in the wilderness. Look at the very last words of the chapter. In the wilderness this is where they are. But then here at this moment, we get a sign that the Lord, as we've been surmising, had not in fact rejected David. Because David and his followers are brought provisions, a great many provisions, in fact, including beds. And they come from some unexpected sources. Just hang in there as we finish this text. Look at these names, which I know probably just go right past you, right? With no understanding of what, it takes a while, but think through it. Shobi, the son of Nahash. Anybody remember Nahash, king of the Ammonites? Look it up (laughs) in Samuel. Shobi's brother is Hanun, who had despised the kindness of David back in chapter 10, which had led to the war that didn't end until Joab captured Rabbah in chapter 12 after David's great sin. And here's Shobi, son of Nahash, supporting David. I mean, there has to be a story there we don't know about. But perhaps it's somehow linked to the fact that David had shown kindness. And at least some of the people of the Ammonites understood that. And then there's Machir, who, in fact, we met briefly in chapter 9. He had provided shelter to Mephibosheth, 
which means that this he had once probably been a supporter of Saul. Maybe Machir as well had come to support David after David had shown the same kindness, the chesed towards Mephibosheth that we talked about back in chapter 9. And what I'm saying is these are responses to the king that God has put in place. They're responding to the king as, as the king acted in accordance with the will of the Lord earlier in Samuel. And then there's Barzillai, who we don't we haven't met before, but we will meet again later in 2 Samuel 19. He's a very elderly man. He's also a very wealthy man. He comes from east of the Jordan River, and he pays homage to David. And those three bring an astonishing array of provisions. Why? Well, look, because they said, end of verse 29, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, that's remarkable on a few levels, but just consider this one for now. You know from your Old Testament history, I think, who is it that feeds his people in the wilderness? Well, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who feeds his people in the wilderness, right? And to do it here, he uses three surprising figures who are rightly responding to the king that the Lord has anointed and put in place for his purposes. We don't know all the backstories. All we can do if we see the clues is marvel. Marvel that the Lord had been at work in the lives of these three men that when the Lord's king would find himself in a time of great need in the wilderness to which the Lord himself had driven him, provision would be made. Friends, chapter 17, I'm just trying to say to you, is about the sovereignty of God. The Lord hasn't abandoned David through whose descendants the promises will pass. His kingdom is forever. How we need to remember that. How Christians in every age need to remember this. We need to remember that as Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The conspiracy against the Lord's king has gone to pot. That's the core message of 2 Samuel 17. It won't be the last time that theme strikes in the Bible. Why? Because Yahweh ordained it. The sovereignty of God, friends, operates at the level of the huge historic kingdom promises. But in a chapter like this, you see the sovereignty of God operates also at the level of individual lives. And what I'm saying to you is that it's all one and the same thing. David's life, Absalom's life, Jonathan's and Ahimaaz's life, the woman's life who hides them in the well... Shobi and Machir and Barzillai? I mean, these are not names that most people know, but your life and mine, also not names that most people know. We can't always see this in our daily lives, brothers and sisters. But I like how one commentator puts it. 
better than I could, so I'll quote him here. The primary characteristic of God's sovereignty in this passage is its hiddenness. More often than not, that is the manner of God's work. His scepter is unseen. His sovereignty hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. We see only grocery lines and diaper changes and school assignments. But through and over and behind it all, Yahweh rules. Brothers and sisters, next Sunday is the Sunday after Ascension. We have a king who rules in this way. Which leads me then in the end to just conclude for you with the thought from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 for the closing thought of this sermon. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Let it be our ultimate application. Therefore, let us be grateful says the author of Hebrews. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.